Well, today we are beginning a series in the book of 1 Timothy. I think we're probably going to be in this series about seven weeks. And uh, today we're going to look at 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, if you want to go ahead and turn there and uh, hold your place uh, at that section of Scripture. And uh, before we read that, I just want to give you a brief introduction to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, This book was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Scholars will debate his authorship a little bit, but historically this has been attributed to Paul. I think it makes sense that Paul wrote it. Uh, He wrote quite a lot of the New Testament. And uh, you might realize that most of Paul's writing in the New Testament was to churches, but there were four books of the Bible that he wrote to individuals. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were written to individuals. And 1 Timothy was written to a young leader in the church by the name of Timothy. He was a disciple of Paul, and uh, he and Paul were very close to each other. And so at the time of the writing of this letter, it was a a private letter rather than a public letter. And at the time of Paul's writing to Timothy, Timothy was serving uh, in the church at Ephesus. 1 Timothy 3.15 gets to the heart of Paul's purpose for this writing, which is this, so you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Uh, William Barclay, who's a Bible commentator and scholar that I really like, uh, described the purpose of this book this way. It is dealing with the care and organization of the flock of God, telling men and women how to behave within the household of God, and giving instructions as to how God's household should be administered, what kinds of people should be leaders in the church, and how threats that endanger the purity of the Christian faith should be uh, dealt with. So uh, it's an important book full of uh, really good stuff. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy was motivated at least in part by similar concerns to what we saw uh, when he when we looked at the book of Colossians earlier this summer. Uh, the church was being influenced by Gnosticism, uh, which saw all matter as being evil. Uh, of course, this view presented many challenges to the Christian faith. Uh, for example, since they believed matter was evil, the Gnostics did not believe that God could have been directly involved in the creation of the world. And so they loved to engage in speculation about how the earth was created apart from God's uh, direct involvement. Uh, without going into all the details, I'll also mention that the Gnostics uh, uh, tended to believe that complete salvation was only available to people with superior intellects, uh, which of course does great damage uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is available to all uh, who turn to Christ. In faith, the church was also being uh, impacted, influenced by Jewish legalism. Uh, the Judaizers who would come along behind Paul, he would go into an area, preach the gospel, people would be converted, and then they would come along behind him and say, You know, uh, this faith in Jesus is a good thing, but to be saved, Christ alone is insufficient, and, and you really now need to make sure that you follow the Jewish law. The the Gnostics and the legalists would sometimes team up where they could find common ground and both together and separately, they posed a real threat to the church and the purity of the gospel. The final thing that I'll mention uh, by way of introduction is that Paul is writing to Timothy who is in a church that is in the context of a very corrupt corrupt city, a very corrupt culture. They were, the church was an island in a sea of idolatry. 
they, they were not in a supportive culture. They were in a very sinful culture, which is something that those of us in the American church can increasingly uh, identify with and connect with. So in this context, Paul writes to his young disciple and leader in the church about how people ought to live in the household of faith within the church of Jesus Christ. So with that brief introduction, let's look at 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. I'll read and you follow along. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now keep in mind that Paul is writing in the context of heresies that are threatening the church. Heresies from the Gnostics, heresies from from the legalists, both trying to lead people away from simple faith in Christ, And the answer Paul articulates here in the first chapter of Timothy is that contrary to what the Gnostics and the legalists have to say, the truth is that Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. You don't need Christ plus something else. You don't need Christ plus intellectualism, Christ plus legalism. You don't need Christ plus something else. Christ is enough. Christ is enough our all. And so we're going to find in these first 11 verses that for the Christian, Christ is all. Paul doesn't even get through his greeting to Timothy without beginning to answer the heresies uh, that are impacting the church and answer them with the truth of the gospel. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. The Gnostics placed their hope in intellectualism, but believed that they could secure salvation through speculative reasoning about the mysteries of the universe. The legalists placed their hope in observing their law and customs, earning salvation through personal merit. Intellectualism and legalism were the foundation of these folks' hope. Paul answers them in the very first verse, identifying Christ as the hope of the believer. Today we live in a very similar time. Intellectualism is the hope of many people both within the church and without. Now when you talk like this, it's dangerous, and so I want to be very clear that I am solidly in support of being intellectually curious people. 
I want to be very clear that I am pro-smart people. I, I am pro-education. But there are people who fit into this category of placing their hope in their intellect. They're, they're usually people that no matter how settled a topic is in the church, they're always wanting to turn it over, turn it over, and find something new, some new twist, some new take, some explanation how it doesn't actually mean uh, what everybody for 2,000 years has thought it meant. These people are annoying and these people are dangerous to the faith. Many to, thank, thank you, Dale. Uh, many today place their hope in legalism, in, in being a good enough person to merit God's approval. And we've talked about that in recent weeks. We talked about that uh, just last week. Paul is emphatic. Christ is the hope of the Christian. And uh, William Barclay very helpfully shared three ways in his commentary on 1 Timothy that Christ is our hope. And I wanted to share those with you. There are the fill in the blank sections on your outline. First, Christ is our hope of moral victory and self-conquest. When we become aware of our sinful condition before God, when we turn to Christ in faith and then we endeavor to begin living a life that's pleasing to God, you may have noticed that on our own we have no chance of yielding to God living good and righteous lives in ourselves. We just are not up to that task. We are overmatched when we confront the temptations that face us, the habitual sins that we've given ourselves to, the negative attitudes that plague us. But the good news is that our hope is not in reforming ourselves. Our hope isn't in achieving moral victory through the force of our will. Christ is our hope of gaining moral victory. Christ is our hope of conquering the selfish desires of our flesh. As we give ourselves uh, increasingly to him, as we allow him to take his rightful place of rule in our lives, he begins to do the work in us that little by little by little allows us to, to begin growing into people that live a little more like we ought to live. Christ is also the hope a victory over circumstances, the hope of victory over circumstances. And something I'm really uh, thankful to, to be able to realize is that Christianity came into the world in a time and place where people faced horrible personal insecurity. Each day was just a struggle for survival. And when, when the Roman historian Tacitus wrote of the time of the birth of the church, he, he uh, included this and in what he had to say, I am entering upon the history of a period rich in disaster, gloomy with wars, rent with sedition, nay, savage in its very hours of peace. People in that day longed for some defense against the chaos of their world. It is into that kind of world, a chaotic, dangerous, terrible world that Christ came, that Christianity was born and people living in that time uh, found strength to live in the face of such, such circumstances as they turned to Christ and found courage through him. They believed that nothing could separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And in believing that, Christians discovered the strength even to face death and to be victorious over the terrors of the time that they lived in. 
Friends, our hope for victory over circumstances is Christ. Now, I think many of us, probably most of us, feel as though we are living in a very chaotic time where where things just seem like worse than than they've been in like our, our memory at least. And every once in a while I read an article that tries to put in perspective for us how things really aren't as bad as we think they are. And sometimes I find those articles a little bit persuasive, at least, you know, on the affluence type things that we have and all of that kind of thing. But I think deep down, most of us just have this inner sense that the world feels as though it's kind of spinning out of control. It's just increasingly chaotic. And so may we know what those people then knew, that Christ is our hope for victory over the chaotic circumstances that we live in. You know, politics are not our hope. And I say that as someone who, if you've been around here very long at all, you know that I believe Christians ought to be involved in politics. I believe Christians ought to have their voice heard in the political arena and and ought to the extent that we're able kind of exert our influence on the culture in the political arena. But folks, the political arena is not our hope for our chaotic world. Christ is our hope. And Christ is also our hope of victory over death. Even when the worst that can happen, happens. Even then, Christ is our answer. Christ is our hope. Our hope isn't our intellect when we face temptation or a chaotic world or death. Wouldn't it be awful to face death with the hope being in your intellect? What death does in that moment, it just reveals how completely inept intellect actually is. How powerless it actually is. Can't sustain life for an extra minute based on intellect. Our hope isn't in our goodness when we face temptation or a chaotic world or death and final judgment. In all of these things, Christ alone is our hope. Not only is Christ our hope, but Paul goes on in verse 2. Unto Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is our hope. Christ is our Lord. There's a lot of meaning in this word Lord. We've talked about that before, much that can be said. But for today, I want to remind you that Paul is writing to share with Timothy how people ought to conduct themselves in the house of God, in the local church. Christ is Lord over his church. The church is Christ's church. As such, we are not free to make the church whatever we want it to be. The church has to be what he wants it to be. Now, because we're fallible people, we often fail as the church to be all that God wants us to be. We we often fail to preserve the church as the institution that God wants it to be. But it's important to view the church as Christ and ourselves as simply having a fiduciary responsibility to make it and manage it in the way that he wants it handled rather than viewing it as something that we can make into our image, or what we want. You see, this is what the Gnostics and the legalists were up to. 
They were trying to form the church in their image. They, they were trying to make the church what they wanted it to be. They were trying to turn the church from the glorious gospel of Christ into an institution focused on things other than Christ, focused on intellectualism, focused on legalistic righteousness, meticulously keeping the law. But as Lord, Christ's church is to be what he wants it to be, focused on him and his glorious gospel. Now, thankfully, we haven't had much of this around here, but churches are often confronted to this very day with people who want to turn the focus of the church to their pet doctrine or their pet belief. Their latest twist on scripture that nobody besides them has ever come up with, which makes it almost certain to be wrong. You know, there have been a lot of smart people in the church over the last 2,000 years. If you've come up with something that none of them ever thought of, you should be extremely suspicious of yourself. Christ's church isn't to entertain all the competing philosophies of everyone who comes through the doors. It's just not. Christ's church is to focus on the main and the plain of Scripture, which gives us a lot to talk about, but keeps us centrally focused on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the glorious gospel of God's grace. As Lord of his church, we have an obligation to manage his church and live as part of his church in a way that honors his intention for the church, not the intentions of those who love philosophical arguments or legalistic religion. And so that leads us to the next thing that we find. Christ is our hope. Christ is our Lord, and Christ is our love, the focus of our interests and affections. Verse 3 through 7. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. This is really clear. The church is being negatively impacted by people who are teaching false doctrines, including what Paul calls myths, and genealogies. Uh, Both the Gnostics and the legalists were fascinated with genealogies. And something they would do is they would construct completely fictitious genealogies for themselves, connecting themselves to past impressive figures in history, or even in the case of the Gnostics, uh, connecting their genealogy to mythological figures which they felt gave them extra spiritual credibility and and bolstered their standing within uh, the community. They were fascinated with topics and issues. This is very key. They were fascinated with topics and issues where speculation was the best that could be accomplished. Issues where there could not be certainty, only speculation. And Paul calls this meaningless talk. And he points out that they confidently assert things 
that they have no idea what they're talking about. So they're, they're certain of things that you just really cannot be certain of. You know, churches are still impacted by this kind of thing. People come into churches and rather than wanting to focus on the main and plain of our faith, they want to engage in debate and speculation on peripheral issues. Oh, you receive communion quarterly here? That ought to be done every week. Well, you know, actually the Bible doesn't say how often it should be done. Well, true, but, and then you have a highly developed, opinionated rant coming your direction. It's one of the most awkward newcomers classes I ever had when we had someone in the newcomers class who was just adamant that a church without weekly communion was just completely messing up. Oh, you only dunk people once when you baptize them? Don't you know you're supposed to dunk people three times? Once when you say Father, once when you say Son, and once when you say Holy Spirit. Well, the Bible doesn't actually say that. Well, true, I'll concede that point, but here's why you should do it anyway. And then you have a big, long explanation headed your way. Do you guys here believe that Jesus is going to return before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? Well, you know, (laughs) hush. (laughs) Well, you know, we're really not sure. We're, We're just really not sure. Well, you know, it's really important to believe he's going to return before the tribulation because... And then you have an opinion headed your way that has been elevated to gospel truth. You know you should not have your worship space dimly lit, right? (laughs) Why is that? Because the Bible says that God is light. Oh, okay, okay. And that applies to the auditorium exactly how? Opinionated rant raised to the level of gospel truth. Now, let me be clear. There is nothing wrong with having opinions. There's nothing wrong with engaging on topics with debatable answers. It can actually be quite enjoyable and fun if done appropriately. (laughs) But fundamental to what Paul is saying here is that the church of Jesus Christ is not to have as its focus debatable things. It is to be centered on the main and plain things, the things that are of central importance, Jesus Christ, him crucified, him risen, him coming again. Thankfully, we have not faced a lot of this kind of thing here at this church, in part because when we do, we don't give it any room. And we're never going to. We're just not. Paul says these types of things are a distraction that detract from advancing God's work. They lead people away from love, purity of heart, and sincere faith. 
and focus them instead on intellectual speculation and winning arguments. And here's what this kind of thing reveals about people. It reveals that they're more in love with knowledge, speculation, and being right on debatable topics than they are with Jesus. Our main interest in the church is not to be hashing out debatable stuff. We can be interested in such things. We can have open and respectful dialogue and reason together about such things. But those are not to be the things that we get the most charged up about. Those are not to be the things that we're to be the most passionate about. Christ is the love of the Christian. Christ is who we are to be passionate about, who we are to be charged up about. Christ is to be the focus of our interest and our affection, not our philosophies and not our rigid moral codes, but Christ. And I say this next part respectfully. I, I, I hope it comes off gently and, and kindly, but, but I think this is stuff that we need to consider. If you get more charged up about arguing for a pre-tribulation rapture than you do someone getting saved, you might be the kind of person that Paul was writing to Timothy about. If you're more excited to share your latest view on some debatable theological issue than you are sharing the simple gospel message, you might be the kind of person that Paul was writing to Timothy about. If you get more animated because another family in the church lets their kids watch a TV show you'd never let your kids watch than you do about that family's kid getting baptized, you might be the kind of person that Paul was writing to Timothy about. In the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself is to be our love, the focus of our interest, the focus of our affection, not proving ourselves right on debatable issues or demeaning others who aren't as excited about our speculations as what we are. Christ is our hope, Christ is our Lord, Christ is our love, and then we find that Christ is our righteousness. Verses eight through 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. The legalists were completely convinced that their right standing before God had to be secured by meticulously keeping the Mosaic law. Jesus was not their focus. Law keeping was their focus. And so Paul reminds Timothy that the law has a good and proper use. That use is bringing us to the realization that we need Jesus. But while the law has a good and proper use, the law is not for people who have have turned to Christ in faith and been regenerated by the power of God. The law is for lawbreakers and irreligious people, again, for the purpose of bringing them to the realization of their need of Jesus. But the law can never do what only Christ can do, and that's make people righteous. The legalists thought they could be righteous by doing right But Paul taught that no one can ever be righteous by the works of the law. Only Jesus makes us righteous. And this is such an insidious thing. 
I mean, even people who say the right things often become convinced that they're right with God because of living right. God empowers us to live good lives. God empowers us to live right. But living right doesn't make any of us righteous. Only Jesus can do that. And so in God's house, in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, we are to be people who know where our righteousness comes from, Jesus and Jesus only. And this keeps us from getting puffed up when we start to live right. It keeps us from being too hard on a brother or sister who falls short. It keeps us gentle and kind toward others as we all grow together in our faith. And finally, we see in verse 11 that Christ is our message. Paul writes of the gospel that brings glory to God and which has been entrusted to him. Like Paul, the gospel that brings glory to God has been entrusted to each and every one of us here who name Christ as Savior and Lord. The gospel, the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is only good news if it is shared, if it is told. And so it is the message of the church. It is the thing we are commissioned to proclaim. It is our message. A pre-tribulation view of the rapture is not our message. Even if that happens to be the right view. Debating the merits of frequency of communion is not what we are called to proclaim. Arguing about the meaning of and the methods of keeping the Sabbath is not our message. It's a good topic. It's, it's, it's something we look into. It's something we apply to our lives as, as we understand it, but it's not our message. I, I saw a church recently that put on their sign uh, an opinion that the Sabbath should be observed on Saturday. And I thought, oh my gosh. Of all of the things that you could communicate to people passing by, this is what you chose to communicate? This was like the one that was so important you had to put it on the billboard? Sabbath keeping is not our message. Jesus is the message of his church. And so here's what Paul has let young Timothy know in the first few verses of this very personal letter. No matter what those who are infiltrating the church are trying to make it about, it's really all about Jesus. That's what it's about. Jesus is our hope. He is our Lord. He's our love. He's our righteousness. He is our message. He is everything. Christ is our all. Is he all to you? Is he your hope? Is he your Lord, your love, your righteousness? Is he your message? If he's not, I appeal to you today to renounce the things that you have placed in his rightful place and allow Christ to begin to be all of these things to you. Reject the intellectualism and the legalism that leads you down paths away from Christ And allow Christ to be your all, your your hope, your Lord, your love, your righteousness, and your message. That's what he is for the true church. That's what he is for the true church. 
And may he be that for each and every one of us individually. Why don't you stand?